everyone. Welcome to Everyday Theologian, where we educate, empower, and equip you to know why you believe what you believe. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us again today. If you are listening to the audio or you're watching on YouTube, again, welcome and thanks for being here. Last week, we talked about the Old Testament. We did an overview, kind of a walkthrough, and um, maybe you felt like I left you hanging, right? I left you hanging with where the Israelites were, uh, just in bondage with sin, but don't fear. We're going to pick right back up today. There is one thing that I mentioned last week that I just kind of wanted to tie up any loose ends if I left anything kind of um, confusing for you uh, with the Bible translations. So if you remember last week, I started the podcast by talking about how your Bible at home may be different than your neighbor's Bible at their house or when you're sitting in church and the person beside you opens up to the same chapter. It may be different words. And what is going on with that? Are are the translations wrong? What's happening? So I had mentioned how there are uh, word-for-word translations that take the Hebrew and Greek and then translate them basically verbatim into English, exactly what the word is. And then there's thought-for-thought translations that translate um, what the uh, author was more so trying to purvey to the reader instead of the exact words. And then I gave a third category of a paraphrase. So instead of just saying exactly what the um, original author was saying, they paraphrase that. So in all of that, I also mentioned how the English versions, right, could have some error within them. In saying that, I know we've talked a lot about bibliology. In the second podcast, I talked about uh, Everyday Theologian's doctrinal statement. And one thing that I mentioned was that we believe the Bible is inerrant. In saying that, inerrancy is talking about the original manuscripts. So I don't want you to feel like your Bible at home is not correct. Do not go and throw your Bible away and never read it again. I am absolutely not saying that. I just really want you to understand what the actual argument is, especially if you have a conversation with non-believers. So inerrancy is talking about that in the original manuscripts, they are completely true and without error. They They are inerrant and infallible. Now, God is big enough to preserve his word. So when I say that your translation could have error in it, I do not mean that the meaning within the text has error. God has preserved the meaning of the Bible. What I simply mean is if you open up the King James Version, you will see that there are texts that are not within the ESV or NIV or newer translations. Now you may say, okay, well, why is that? Um, And you could even pause this and go and look. You can Google this. You can go and look and you can find the exact verses I'm talking about. So when the King James Version was translated in 1611, they used a document called the Textus Receptus. 
Now, we currently have manuscripts that predate that manuscript that they used. For instance, in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And these are incredibly awesome for our faith because it also gives us encouragement knowing that since these manuscripts are so old and we have English translations now, they have the same meaning behind them. They have the same words. They're almost exact. So when I talk about um, your Bible could have some error in it, I do not at all mean that it has lost its meaning, that it is far off. All I simply mean is that um, there could be a word that may not be in the original manuscript, right? There could be um, grammar issues due to translation problems. I in no means have meant that your Bible is not accurate. That is that is not what I meant. And I um, hope that you feel encouraged in that. But if you get out into um, some world conversations with non-believers, one thing you may hear, I have heard this on my own, is that, well, the Bible is made by man. And it has been translated so many times that it's wrong. And I really want you to understand how to um, defend your faith in that area. So when we talk about inerrancy, we're talking about that in the original manuscripts, the the Bible is completely true without error. Now, the translations that are at our house that we read every day, they are true as well. And they do not have error in their meaning. They are completely accurate. I just want you to understand that there could be translation problems, right? Right not within the context. So, and another thing, another part of encouragement I want to give you with that is we do not have to defend our faith to other people. We we should be able to share our faith, right? But we do not have to um have to give our faith to other people. We cannot give our faith. That is something that someone has to choose on their own. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we read that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So when we talk about inerrancy, we are, we're talking in faith. When we talk about our translation that we read at home, we are believing that it is accurate within its context through faith. We have faith knowing that God can and has pres- preserved his word for us. So I also want to encourage you that I do not read Hebrew and Greek. I am not at home um, reading original manuscripts, okay? I don't have the Dead Sea Scrolls at my house. I'm pretty sure that they're in a museum somewhere. So in saying that, I also read English. I read English versions. So I have full faith that the context within the Bible I read at home is accurate. I just wanted to encourage you with that. And I also just wanted to say, if I was confusing last week and talking about inerrancy, I apologize. I just want you to understand um, the argument that's at hand with people and be uh, confident and ready to have conversations like that. So let's do a quick recap. I hope you guys have been practicing all the numbers that I told you last week. I hope you've been clapping at your house and uh, really working on the beat. So if you remember, the Old Testament was 5, 12, 5, 5, 12, right? Are you clapping? 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. 
And then the New Testament was 4121. 41211. So if you did not listen last week, maybe you're wondering, okay, I'm not understanding what these numbers are. These are numbers that categorize books of the Bible for us. There are 66 books of the Bible with one big story. And within that, we can put these 66 books in certain categories. So uh, we walked through the Old Testament. If you did not listen last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's podcast, uh, maybe even before you listen to this one. But we ended with the Israelites basically um, in a cycle. We learned about the judges and the kings and the prophets and how they continuously uh, were in bondage to sin. They did not have repentant hearts and they continuously were rebellious in their relationship with God. And then the Old Testament ends with 400 years of silence. We saw that God was not speaking to his people. Prophets were not hearing from God. Um, there were not uh, ways that people were speaking to him. But with him being silent, he was still working. He was creating languages and um, and governments in a way that was preparing for Christ's first coming, right? And then when we start the New Testament, that is where we pick up. So one thing I want to add real quick is if you have read the Old Testament and we talked last week about God's people being called the Israelites, right? And then you turn into the New Testament and you read about God's people, they are considered the Jews. So are they the, are they the same people? Maybe you're wondering why is there this random name change? So yes. God's people throughout the entire Bible are the same group of people. However, um, you will see them referred to as different names, such as Israelites and Jews. So in the Old Testament, if you remember, I talked about how God's people were split into two kingdoms. You had the Northern Kingdom, which was called the Israelites, and you had the Southern Kingdom, which was called um, Judah. So if you go into the New Testament, and remember, remember the context, they were in enslaved and then they were free and then they were enslaved, right? Well, during their captivity, the northern kingdom of the Israelites actually ended up being dispersed. And the southern kingdom of Judah were the ones that remained with their identity in, in God's people, in who they, they were originally. So when we move into the New Testament, you see them being called Jews because they're branching from Judah. They're coming from the southern kingdom of Judah. And maybe you're kind of like trucking with, with me and remembering, oh yeah, Christ is from the line of Judah. Yes, so we have the southern kingdom, Judah, and then we move into the new kingdom and we see them being called Jews. So that was just a little, um, hopefully a good smooth trans transition from understanding where we left off in the Old Testament to where we're moving into the New Testament. So we pick up with four books that are called the Gospels. And the Gospels are good news. They're good news because they tell the story of Christ coming, his 
his birth, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So in saying that, they're written by four different men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they tell the same story, but through four different lenses, through different sets of eyes. So for instance, if you and I saw the same thing happen, we would tell the same story, but it would probably be a little bit different because, well, you're you and I'm me and we have different personalities. So we just explain things a little bit differently. So when you're in the gospels, that's what you're going to see. They do not at all contradict each other, but they may have different stories in one versus the other because maybe one author saw one story more important to add than another author saw. So we'll start off with um, the book of Matthew. We'll just go in order. The book of Matthew was written to Jewish believers. So um, written to God's people, right, who believed in him. And uh, Matthew speaks of Christ fulfillment. So his main theme when you're reading his book is he is trying to get across to you that Jesus is the promised one, that all these prophecies in the Old Testament, they are being fulfilled. They are being fulfilled in Christ. So when you read his gospel, you're going to read a genealogy. When I say that, you're like, oh my gosh, genealogies, right? They're so boring at times. We just see like this name and then he had a son named this name. And sometimes it's just like, I don't even know how to pronounce these words. Am I the only? Okay, first off, I cannot be the only one that's got on Google and typed in the name and then listened to see how, how do you pronounce this name? Okay, don't leave me hanging with that. I cannot be the only one. So we see right when we kick off the Gospels, we start with a genealogy. And before you think that this is boring, the genealogy, let me give you a little context about why this genealogy is so important. Matthew goes all the way back to Christ being connected to Abraham. So if you remember in Genesis chapter four last week, we talked about Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, how God gave a promise to a man named Abram, Abraham, and he told him that all nations will be blessed through you. Okay. And then, right. And then he's like, oh, I can't even have kids. So how is this going to work out? Well, in the book of Matthew, we see, wow, this promise that God made all these years ago is being fulfilled. It is coming to life through Christ because All nations are blessed through him. We see that now, right? You and I are sitting at a time um, in history where we see all of this coming. But at that time, they didn't understand all that we see now. So Matthew is writing that, yes, this promise has come to pass. The promise one that we, our, our ancestors had hoped for all these years, he is now here. He has come for us. So that genealogy um, and Matthew's point of writing is to let the author know, let the Jewish believer know that, yes, our Savior has come. The promised one that we have waited for has come. So after after Matthew, we step into Mark, and Mark was writing to Gentile Christians. So he was writing to people who were not God's chosen people, but they were believers 
And most scholars actually believe that Mark was written first. So he records Christ as the suffering servant. So he wants to get across to the believer that Christ was one that came and suffered for us, for his people, and um, ultimately came to die for our sins. And then the, uh, the next gospel, the third gospel, is going to be the gospel of Luke. And he was actually writing to one man named Theophilus. And I did say that correctly because, yes, I Googled to make sure I said that name correctly. So if you have to Google how to pronounce words, you're not alone and keep doing that. So Luke was writing to a man named Theophilus and Luke was writing to him to encourage his faith, to hope that Theophilus would place his faith in Christ. So Luke was a physician and we see in his writings, we see that type of detailed style. So um, in in writing the the Bible, God allowed people's personalities to come into the writing through the Holy Spirit's inspiration. So again, going back to inerrancy, we believe that the Bible is completely true, but we also see how God used a people to preserve his word. So Luke's ultimate goal in um, telling the author who Christ is, is to show his humanity right? Christ stepped in to a human form, which if we just stop and pause and think about that is, is amazing that the God who created you, um, stepped into humanity to save you from the sin that you were in bondage to. So that's how Luke portrays Christ in his humanity. And we see another genealogy, so before we we stop and think, oh, another one, let's remember the author is always doing something with what the author is saying. There are points behind all of the words. So when you see something that may be kind of boring, just pause and think, okay, there is a purpose behind what I'm reading right now. So another genealogy, Luke, he goes back all the way to Adam, the first man. And in his writings, he wants you to understand Christ's humanity. So he goes all the way back to, yes, Christ is from man, right? So then the last gospel is the gospel of John. And in this gospel, it's written in a style that's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So maybe you've been in Sunday school or your small group, and you've heard the term synoptic gospel, the Noptic Gospel refers to the first three books, the first three Gospels, because they are similar in their style of writing. In John's writing, it is different. So he wrote to Gentile nations that did not believe in Christ yet, and he wanted to portray that Christ is the Son of God. That Luke, Luke talked about his humanity, but John talks about that the actual son of God came to earth. So from the gospels, right, we, we see so much, we could just really talk about these the entire time, but we see so much about who Christ is that he physically came to earth, right? And died for your sins and was rose again. And through that, through people knowing that, we step into the next book and people started taking action because 
you can't allow other people just to be in bondage to sin when you know a way that can free them from that, right? And that that goes for our own lives. If, if we are saved, we want to share that hope that we have with other people. And we see that happening in the book of Acts, the next book in the New Testament. So the book of Acts, again, written by Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke. Um, you could kind of call this book like Luke volume number two, right? Because he wrote this one. And um, this is a history book. So when I say history, it's talking about the beginning of the church. We see the church forming and starting and then launching. It's literally like catapulted out. They are so pumped to share the good news of Christ. They are just going left and right. And it is even full of people like laying down their lives for this gospel, for this good news. That same gospel is what should penetrate our hearts as well. Now, obviously, I don't want you to die, but that same passion that they had should still fill our bones as well. So we see the church, we see the church beginning, and we also see the Holy Spirit come and dwell in the lives of believers. Now, the same Holy Spirit that came during that time for the early church is the same Holy Spirit that we receive when we place our faith and hope in Christ. So in John chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus is speaking and he says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit still comes and he still teaches us, and he still brings to remembrance all that Christ had said. So that was before that was before Christ ascended into heaven, and he was telling his disciples, have hope, right? The Holy Spirit is coming, and he will comfort us, and we still have the Holy Spirit, who is part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God living inside of us, right? So again, that is the book of Acts. Um, we see the apostles. We see the apostles moving and shifting and planting churches, right? When I say apostle, that simply means one who is sent. So the disciples, they were apostles. And then we have um, apostles who were under them, who may not have walked with Christ, but who were walking with the original disciples. So after the book of Acts, we have 21 epistles. And that is just a fancy word for me saying letters. So if you're ever in a small group and you're just having coffee with a friend and you want to throw in a really fancy word, just tell them that you were reading the epistles this morning. And they'll be like, wow, I'm so impressed by this person. All that means is letters. So I don't really know anyone who um, who just says, just uses the word epistles, but Let's just refer to them as letters. So we see 21 letters. These go um, all the way from the book of Romans to the book of uh, Jude. And I'm not going to go into each each book, but I do want to tell you that there are two major themes that are dealt with in every single book. So... They may be dealt with differently, 
but it's the same two issues. They are orthodoxy and orthopraxy. What I'm saying by that is the the author who Paul wrote um, most of these books, but there are other authors as well. Each author was writing to either a person or a church, and they were dealing with doctrinal issues, theology issues, and basically Christian faith. So when I say orthodoxy, all that means is what is correct doctrine? What is correct theology? So we see most, a lot of the authors dealing with, hey, this is the correct teaching in this. And you have someone having false teaching. So they're constantly correcting what is correct theology? What is correct doctrine? And then the second thing that's dealt with is orthopraxy. And that is how to act from the correct doctrine, how to act from the correct theology. So the first thing is knowing the right type of Christian doctrine. And the second thing is how to live out after you know what correct doctrine is, how to apply that to your life. So all of these 21 letters are telling individuals or they're telling um, churches how to believe. They're giving them encouragement and teaching standpoints, even rebuking them on um, on poor theology and um, also telling them, how how is this applicable to your life, right? I'm not, Paul was not just writing random letters for people to read. He was telling them, hey, this should change your life. This should literally transform you from the inside out and then draw other people to Christ. So friends, I just want to pause real quick and tell you that it is so, so important that you have correct theology, that you have correct Christian doctrine. And I know that we have different views at times, but when I talk about first level issues, we should all understand what we believe in those. Even second and third level issues, if you don't know what I'm talking about with um, theology levels, you can go back to the second podcast I uh, released and I talk about those. So in saying that, we want to know why we believe what we believe. That is why I created this platform. I don't always want you to agree with me, but I do want you to be able to share your faith effectively. And I want you to search the scriptures, just like the uh, church at Berea in Acts 17.11. They search the scriptures day and night to see if what Paul was saying is true. We want to follow that exact example. We want to search the Bible to know what is true. So when I say that 21 letters of the New Testament have to deal with correct Christian doctrine and theology, and then how that applies to your life, we should know why we believe what we believe. Also, Paul addresses false teachers. If he talks about correct theology, he has to address poor theology. So in um, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4, Paul writes to Timothy, For the time will come when people do not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths. How incredibly sad. And today, 
there are people who do not teach the Bible, who make up their own theology, and it does pull people away from truth. So I never want to just um, talk poorly about leaders or preachers, right? All I want to do is equip you to have discernment. I want you to understand when you hear something that's not biblical. And when you hear something that's not biblical, I want you to have the confidence to grab your own Bible at home and to dig in and to see why what you're listening to isn't true. I want you to be able to defend your faith and share your faith effectively. So back to the 21 letters. Thank you for listening to that. Back to the, the 21 letters. So again, these are from Romans to Jude. And um, let me ask you this. Let's just pause for a second and have some reflection. In your own life, do you have correct Christian doctrine? I've been talking about how important it is, but let's look within our hearts right now. Do you feel like you have correct theology? And do you feel like if you heard a podcast or you heard a teaching, do you feel like you could discern if something wasn't true? Do you know your Bible enough to know when you hear something that is truth, is biblical, or maybe you take what other people say and just say, yeah, I'm going to go with that. And if you do, I don't want to discourage you. I actually just want to spur you to let's be a little bit more wise, to let's wake up and study to show ourselves approved. So here is a quick study tip. If you are reading some of uh, Paul's writing, some of his letters that he wrote, you can turn back to the book of Acts, to the um, theological history book I told you about, the beginning of the church, and you can actually read what was going on when Paul was writing some of his letters. So it's kind of fun, actually, if you go back and Acts and read what he was doing and then go and read the letter that he wrote at the same time. So you see what he's doing when he wrote the letter, and it kind of puts the puzzle pieces together, right? Sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we may feel like we just took um, a basket of puzzle pieces and then just like threw them up in the air and they just landed everywhere and you don't know how to put it back together. That's actually how I feel at my house uh, when my kids completely throw their toys everywhere, right? It just looks like this chaotic mess. And you think, okay, there has to be some organization in this, right? There has to be, these toys go in a certain area and the puzzle pieces go in a certain area to make the puzzle fit. So when we're reading the Bible, we know, yeah, there are a lot of working, moving parts, but they do fit together in a way that makes sense to us if we just take the time. Nobody sits down and puts 300 puzzle pieces together in five minutes. And if you do that, that is absolutely incredible. But I, I don't think anyone does that. So with the Bible, sometimes we have to pause and ask ourselves, how does what I'm reading fit together with the rest of the text? So if you're reading a book that Paul wrote, remember, oh, I could go back to Acts and read what was going on when he wrote this book. So that's just a quick study tip. And the last book of the New Testament is the book of Revelation. And this is an eschatology book. 
So what I mean by that term, that theology term, is that this book refers to the end times. It's a prophetic book that uh, it was written by John, who also wrote the Gospel of John and who also wrote the three letters of John. So he wrote this book as well. He was exiled on an island called Patmos, Patmos, however you want to say it. You could, you could again, Google it and listen and see how, how you want to pronounce that. But he had a vision to write to seven churches. And the churches that we read about in the book of Revelation, they were churches that were in existence then. So he's writing to churches that are in existence. But these letters also tell us about churches um, that, that we could read about in history. It's certain characteristics of churches, right? That we could even read about today. And it's certain characteristics that we could read about within our own church. So when we read about these, the principles and the issues that John is addressing are applicable to our lives now. So he's writing to um, encourage churches and to rebuke churches, and then also to warn churches that the way they are going is not biblical and is not glorifying to God. So this book gives us hope, right? It, it reminds us that Christ will return for his church and we can have celebration. We can have celebration in Christ's first coming, knowing as believers that he has come once to set us free from bondage. But again, if you remember the podcast I wrote about the meta narrative of scripture, we're living in a time where it's called the not yet period. So Christ has come and we are free from sin and we do have hope, but he's not yet come again. We still wake up and still see sin around us. We wake up and we see sin within us. We're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. But we have hope. The book of Revelation gives us hope because it reminds us that he will come again and gives the account of him actually coming again. So if you study or have studied the book of Revelation, you may see um, some confusing things because John was actually writing and in his vision, he was writing about things he might not have actually known what they were. And he was seeing things that may not have even been created in his time. So when you read, John was simply just trying to describe what he was seeing. And to him, it might not have even completely made sense. So when we read, uh, we read about the seven years of tribulation. And there are different views. There are different theology views of uh, this seven years. Some people believe Christ will come before the seven years start in the middle or even at the end. And then there's also different views on the 1000 year millennium reign of Christ. In saying that, I don't really want to get into all the nitpicky details, though I think they are important. I simply right now just want to give you hope that all Christians are in agreement and in unity, knowing that Christ will return for his people. In Revelation chapter 20, verses seven through nine, we see that Satan will be destroyed, gone, that he will be eradicated and that Christ will reign, that sin will be no more, 
the sin that engulfed us in Genesis chapter three, remember with Adam and Eve, that we were born into that sin in Revelation chapter 22, it is gone. That sin is no more because God has conquered sin. He has conquered death, right? So um, one way that this outline of scripture, I hope helps you right now, wherever you are, is that we can rest assured knowing that Christ will come. But right now too, he is preparing a place for us. In John chapter 14, verse three, Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That right now, while we're in the already, but not yet period of time, that Christ is preparing a place for us. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, he is preparing a place to take us where sin is no more. So as we read through the Bible, friends, it's incredibly important to understand the big story of what's happening. We've already spoken about the meta narrative, And then last week and this week, I talked about the outline. So as we understand the big picture, we want to peel back the layers and understand the categories of where the books are. When we're reading a certain verse within a certain chapter, we want to understand, okay, now how does this puzzle piece fit within the big storyline, within the big picture? So let's ask yourself questions. We can ask which category of the Bible does this book fit into? That I wake up during my quiet time, where does this book fit? And then ask yourself the question, what is the author doing with what he is saying? If you're reading Matthew chapter one and you're diving into a genealogy that just seems like a lot of names, ask yourself that question. What is the author doing with what the author is saying? Remember, things are not just at random within the Bible. God has preserved his word for us for a reason. And then ask yourself orthodoxy and orthopraxy questions. Am I understanding correct doctrine? Am I understanding correct theology? Then ask yourself, because I'm understanding it correctly, am I applying it to my life correctly? We don't just want to be Christians who know information. We want to be Christians who are transformed by the knowledge that we know. So ask yourself, Am I living in such a way that um, shows other people Christ? Is Christ being glorified in my actions each and every day? Friends, I hope that this outline was so helpful during your study. And next week, we're also going to study um, inductive Bible study methods. So next week, we've looked at the big picture. We've looked at the outline. And next week, we're going to talk about study tips. So whatever book you're reading, whatever chapter or verse, there are study ways that can help you understand what each verse is saying. So I'm super excited about that. I hope you are too. And I also just kind of want to um, give you a little sneak peek. So after next week of study methods, we're going to start having some guests on the show. I'm super excited about that. I feel like we've really laid down a a foundation of Christian doctrine, um, how to navigate our Bible. And then we're going to pull in some people to talk about theology topics. 
So stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss that. And also, I just want to continue to encourage you to share your faith with other people with gentleness and respect and to always know why you believe what you believe. Until next time, we'll see you next week. Bye, you guys. Don't forget to check out everydaytheologian.life for more biblical and theological resources and also some exclusive merchandise.